On October 27, 2015, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation hosted an author's talk with Pippa Norris, the Paul F. McGuire Lecturer in Comparative Politics at the Harvard Kennedy School, to discuss her new book, Why Elections Fail. The seminar was moderated by Tony Sage, Director of the Ash Center and Daewoo Professor of International Affairs at the Harvard Kennedy School. For more information, please visit ash.harvard.edu. Pipper is the uh, Paul F. McGuire Lecturer in Comparative Politics. She's also a Laureate Fellow and Professor of Government and International Relations at the University of Sydney. She's served as the Director of Democratic Governance at the UNDP in New York. And what does not appear on her CV is that 10 or 15 years ago, when both of us were in our late 20s, mm -hmm. uh, we taught together in the same department. 10 or 15 years uh, ago, yeah. Sometimes it seems like 10, 15 years ago. Yes, that's right. We actually taught in the same department uh, in the UK. That's it's right. uh, known. Pepper. But anyway, most importantly for our purposes today is that Pippa directs the Electoral Integrity Project. And today's book is the second in a trilogy of works stemming from that project. The first volume uh, was on why electoral integrity matters. And I think what interests me in the book is the workplace's emphasis on electoral contests, rejecting, in, uh, re respecting rather, sorry, international standards and global norms governing uh, the kind of appropriate contact, conduct. And she makes in the book a distinction between governance and democracy, which I think is quite important for the work and the way uh, this project uh, has developed and moved ahead. And she writes that normative authority is understood to derive from the body of human rights treaties and conventions in the international community, not directly from the principles of democracy per se. Mm. I think that's what marks this work out from much of the things that I've seen written about elections. I suspect it's also something that would be contentious uh, for many people who've written and looked at the electoral process uh, in the past. But that enables Pippa to look at a number of the theories that we've been using to explain uh, about democratic processes, elections, whether it be modernization theory, whether it be the external impact of donors or international groups, I guess like UNDP that Pippa worked for before, uh, in terms of promoting uh, electoral processes and electoral reforms. So, uh, there's one more volume to go, uh, but what I've read so far has really stimulated a lot of questions and uh, has quite a different perspective, as I just suggested, uh, to looking at how we might appreciate this process of electoral uh, contexts. Uh, so please join me in welcoming uh, Pippa uh, to speak with us. Thank you so much, Tony. So it's a real pleasure to be over at the Ash Centre in particular because this is where so much work goes on in the field of democracy and human rights and therefore a natural home for a lot of this sort of research. And this is a project which, as Tony says, I, I divide my time between Harvard and Sydney. He first asked me which months or which period do I spend Stupid in Sydney. Question. I know, I mean, really, uh, the Massachusetts winters is where I escape. <laughs> But I'm going to focus on a, a part of this, because obviously you can't summarize all of the different things. So I'm going to think and ask everybody, why do elections fail? When do they really have problems, whether they're malpractices, whether they're maladministration or manipulation? And in particular, what's the role of the international community? Can we actually try to strengthen effectively elections 
or are attempts which have been going on now for many years, do they really fail to achieve their objectives? So this work, I'm going to start with a little bit of background and tell you about the project uh, and talk about how it came about and what the vision of the books are and the vision of the project in general. And then we'll talk a little bit about some of the concepts because as Tony says, often there are misunderstandings, particularly when I present to an American audience because a lot of Americans do assume elections must mean democracy, democracy must mean elections, not necessarily. The framework which I have is one which is more universal and I'll try to put it in context, but it's a human rights framework essentially. The things which the international community has agreed are the main principles and standards that elections should follow. Then I'll talk about measurement because we need to think about evidence. And one of the reasons why the project took off is it struck we were measuring many aspects of all sorts of political phenomena. Democracy, yes. Polity, Freedom House. Human rights, yes. Issues of corruption, yes. But nobody in the past, quite amazingly, had really been measuring the quality of elections. So it struck me as something that our project could do and which we're doing now on a rolling basis throughout the world after each election. So I'll talk a little bit about that and how we measure our issues. Then I'm going to give you some arguments about why elections fail and I'm going to emphasize three different international drivers. So think about all the elections going on around the world and someday we suddenly had some fascinating elections in Africa as well as elections in Poland uh, and in Latin America. So why might they be more problematic than others? One factor could be a process of cosmopolitan communications and global norms. In other words, some countries are very tied to ways that information can flow across their border, and therefore when the international community tries to set certain standards, when they say that, for example, elections should be inclusive, that they should be fair, that they should be competitive, then those societies which are more open might be more subject to those sorts of messages. People might learn from other countries, so that might be one explanation as a process of diffusion across national borders. And it could obviously be a major explanation for the variety of uh, phenomena we see around the world. So if you're a country, for example, cut off, like North Korea, but even more plausibly, like many of the countries which are more isolated, that might be more difficult to accept these global norms, whereas if you're part of that, that might be important. The second explanation, however, is different to this process of the way that norms might move <coughs> across borders, and that's about technical aid and assistance. We're spending, as an international community, a lot of money trying to improve elections. We've been doing this now for many, many years, from the 1960s onwards, but it really expanded in the 1990s with the fall of the Berlin Wall and the expansion of democracy. So maybe countries which receive a lot of assistance, which have skill buildings, for example, for their electoral managers, which have help with their civil society, which have help with their processes of registration, all the things which many different agencies are doing might be the thing which pushes countries in a more effective direction to have more open and fair elections. And the third explanation is another common activity which the international community does, which is electoral observer missions. Nowadays, there's almost no election around the world where some groups of election monitors don't go to see what's going on. The Carter Center pioneered some of this, as did the Organization of American States, and now many organizations do this work as well. So maybe where you get electoral monitors viewing what's happening at the polling station, deterring any malpractices, that might be what again improves the quality of elections. So three explanations that we'll think about some evidence. 
think about what's going on, and then if we have time, the next steps, where are we going with the project in the final volume? So let's just talk a little bit about the background first. What's the project about? Well, it started off, and I hate to say it, but just between ourselves, I got the money before we had the project. Um, the Australian Research Council were very generous, and they gave me quite a lot of resources. And I had to decide what to spend it on. And it was a few years ago we started in 2011, 2012. And I said, elections are one of the areas which really we've been a bit asleep at the wheel. We take them for granted. We understand them in Western democracies. We kind of think that's how they should work elsewhere. But we know that elections have spread to many countries which are far from democratic. They're there in many, many countries like Belarus or Azerbaijan with very restricted human rights. They're there in countries which are very fragile as part of the post-conflict peace building in a country like the Democratic Republic of Congo or in a country like Burundi. Elections are not the way that we do them in the West, and we can't assume that model to be automatically true in many countries. So I said, we've got many countries which are flawed and which are failing. So the first thing we knew is we need to measure that. We need to say, if I've got a map of, say, West Africa, and we want to look at the different countries, how does Benin compare with Togo? How does Mali compare with uh, Ghana? We need to be able to get a sense of where they're strong, where they're not, because the first point of any, any comparison is to really to have that evaluation so we can work out our priorities. Where are they succeeding? Where are they not? And then, when elections are pro problematic, does it matter? Is it just something for academics at Harvard who are concerned about these sorts of things, or for technical policy advisors in working in UNDP? Or does the public actually care? Does it have an impact on, say, their confidence in elected officials, or how they feel about political parties, or whether they trust their parliament? Does it affect how they see democracy and how far they're satisfied with it? And does it affect things like turnout or protests? So does it make a difference, was the second question. And then the last question, which is the one which I'm now confronting, what do we do? The Lenin question, what is to be done? And how do we know what's most effective when we try to strengthen elections either at home or abroad. So a set of questions which have been the vision, and we've still stuck with those questions for different volumes. Uh, the project is a five-year project, which started in 2012 and finishes next year, although it's likely to have an aftermath, of course, if you launch these things, uh, but in a slightly different variety. And everything's available at our website, of course, the electronintegrityproject.com. So, as you can see, we set it all up with an advisory board, with visiting fellows, with interns, with a variety of different books and projects and publications, uh, with seminars, and with research projects and international conferences, etc. All the usual paraphernalia, basically, of any of these things. So these are three books which really reflect those three questions. The first one which came out was Why It Matters. And here what we did was I used the World Values Survey where we asked the public in about 40 different countries how far they felt that their elections did actually meet their expectations. And there was a series of questions. For example, rich people buy, ele buy elections, true, or, uh, and a five-point agree-disagree, or uh, electoral officials are fair, or journalists provide uh, fair coverage. Questions you can ask all the way from Sweden right through to countries like Cambodia. And that gives us a sense of how the public, and the first volume basically said, it's not just a matter of elites, it's not just a matter of those who are committed to democracy. In fact, most people in most countries have very clear views about elections. It's the one occasion they actually experience democracy. It's the one occasion where they can participate in a mass level. 
And where they go wrong, their views are actually very close to how experts see elections and where they see elections are, go are going wrong. So the public isn't fools, and it matters for their confidence. And you know, so many countries, we're worried about confidence in parties, confidence in parliaments. And if your elections go wrong, or they're flawed, your friends aren't on the register when you go to vote, or the polling station isn't open, or there's violence and intimidation, or you observe corruption or vote buying. Lots of different reasons an election can go wrong. But if it does go wrong and you experience that, then turnout goes down and people protest, whether peacefully or violently. So it matters. The second volume is the one I'll talk about, why elections fail. And the next one is what is to be done, strengthening electoral integrity, which I'm still struggling with uh, immensely. Um, and I'll share my pain with you in a bit. Um, this is why elections matter for a variety of different attitudes. And then why elections fail. And the book itself covers more than the international community. It covers things like structural constraints. Think about trying to have an election in Afghanistan in a country with inhospitable terrain, lack of communications, lack of an infrastructure, lack of officials who've got any experience, violence, intimidation in local areas, warlords who control particular provinces, incredible logistical issues. So logically, in a country which is poor, or a country with conflict, or a country with natural resources, that creates real challenges and risks for having an election. International forces are the chapters I'll go into. Power-sharing constitutions might also be important. That's the institutional arrangements which exist. Is it basically a winner-take-all, or do many different parties win? And then the role of electoral authorities, which I'll allude to briefly. But I'll focus on chapter four to give you a little flavor of the book. So what's the concept? When I talk about electoral integrity, um, when I talk about it in an American context, first, first anybody thinks I'm a Republican, <laughs> and I'm talking about uh, impersonation or intimidation, uh, impersonation, double voting at the ballot box. That's not what it's about. I actually got it from the Kofi Annan report, which talked about electoral integrity. And I thought that's a very powerful word. Everybody nods when you say integrity. Everybody says, yes, that's important. Not many people know what it means, which is good. So it's offered room to, to really think it through. So here are just a few of the problems, the most dramatic cases of failure. Thailand. Now, Thailand was a country that was really moving in Asia towards moderate levels of economic growth. It wasn't quite at the forefront of the Asian tigers, but it was certainly moving that way, and towards democracy as well. There was government, there was opposition, there was a series of elections. And people thought that, therefore, it was really on the road to being a beacon, to some extent, in the region. So in 2014, the election, what happened? It had always been a divided country. <coughs> there was the rural areas, the urban areas, there was the reds and, and the yellow movements. And the polarization pulled the country apart. As a result, in 10% of the polling areas, people couldn't go to the polls. There were street demonstrations, there was violence, and there was no access. The election was held, but immediately afterwards, the Constitutional Court said no. You can't have an election with a group who haven't been able to vote. The Prime Minister had to stand down. There were accusations against her. Whether they're true or false is neither here nor there, but the point is it triggered basically a military coup d'etat. So a country that really had been moving towards democracy as a result of the legal challenges and violent protests fell apart. And right now it continues to be ruled by the military. They say there's going to be another election. They promise that. It hasn't yet happened. So that, I think, is a very clear case of failure. One type. Afghanistan. Now, Afghanistan, as you've been following, of course, 2004 was an election that was basically run by the international community. The UN went in, 
with its blue helmets and with its help and really ran that election in a way that people felt there were some problems, but nevertheless, it was a credible result for Hamid Karzai. 2009, the international community stood back and let local officials do much more of the work. There was much more vote buying, there was much more intimidation, there was corruption, many different reports, but nevertheless, Hamid Karzai seemed to have at least a credible outcome, but the opposition had become more mobilized. So what happened most recently, June 2014, essentially stalemate. There were uh, double ballot elections. In the first ballot, it looked as though the opposition leader was doing quite well. But in the second, it looked as though he'd been defeated. As a result, there were claims of fraud on an industrial scale. And nobody would accept it. And each of the different sides was bringing out their forces onto the streets. In mass demonstrations, it looked as though the country was heading for civil war. The only reason why the country remained in some form of uh, stability was intervention by basically American and the United Nations, which stood in with mediation. There was a recount of 8 million votes. Every single ballot the UN went in to try to recount. But even if you recount every single ballot, you still won't work out the problems of fraud. You won't work out if there had been ballot stuffing. All you've got is the paper trail. They refused even to announce the result, and they had a brokered result, where basically it was like a birthday party where the president and the prime minister basically decided to have um, a power-sharing arrangement. But basically that meant everybody who went to the polls, their vote counted for nothing. It didn't determine the outcome. So that was a clear failure, absolutely. And an immense expense, an immense effort, uh, which got nowhere. And the last example, Burundi. And many cases in Africa right now, what we have is presidents who have agreed to have term limitations for two terms, but then somehow they try to manipulate it. They want to stand for a third term. They argue that they can change the constitution, bringing all sorts of outrage. And again, in this case, it triggered violent protests on the streets and in a very unstable situation, an attempted coup d'etat that failed, but nevertheless, people who were killed and people who had basically instability in the whole region of the Great Lakes. So I think those are three clear cases. But let's not assume that we're only talking about countries over there. When we talk about problems of electoral integrity, in our project, we see them as universal. And it's not simply those dramatic cases which are absolute failures. There are flaws in every country. So of course, all I need to mention is Florida to this audience. And we all remember everybody scrutinizing the ballots and going blind and lawyers on every side battling away. Unfortunately, what happened as a result of the 2000 election, <laughs> well, there are many unfortunates that happened <laughs> as a result of the 2000 But one of the unfortunate things was that it, everything about electoral administration in America became partisan. And Republicans became increasingly polarized and claimed voter fraud, and that therefore there should be more registration processes where there was a clear ID. And Democrats said the problem is voter suppression, of particular communities who don't have voter ID, we need to expand voting hours. So California is doing one thing, and other countries like Can other states like Kansas are doing something else. And of course, even if we disregard all of those problems in American elections, we have major issues on things like campaign finance. They're often not seen as problems of integrity, but they're at the heart of issues of electoral integrity. And it's not just America, it's not just the United States. Go over the border to Canada, Canada of all places. Canada, for me, has always been the home of human rights and at the leading edge of de defending democracy and so on. So they learnt from the Republicans 
And there was a move by the Conservative administration to have similar registration requirements in Canada. In Britain, there are issues like that as well and problems with ballot box security. Western Australia managed to lose a couple of ballot boxes, would you believe, off the back of a lorry. I mean, literally, they just fell off the back of a lorry. Um, incompetence and a whole do-over election which made the commissioner stand down. So, so the question is, major flaws in some countries which are unstable, but also problems in our own countries. And all of this is part of what I see as problems of electoral integrity, but with different dimensions. So here's, here's the concept. It's not about Robert Dull and the theory of democracy. A lot of people start there, but that's not where our starting point is. Our starting point is what the international community has agreed. What's been written down in terms of the standards, the principles that elections should follow, right back from 1948 with the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which talked about certain criteria so that there had to be a universal franchise. There couldn't be excluded groups. There had to be a secret ballot. There had to be forms that were a genuine election. And democracy has actually not been a strong part of that human rights framework. It's implicit, but not explicit. And there are many other conventions which have come over the years, social and political rights in 1966, right the way through to the most recent period when we've got, for example, the rights for the disabled, a new convention on that which has been agreed. So for us, electoral integrity are not about America telling the world what to do. They're certainly not about Harvard telling the world what to do, which is not going to be credible. They really are about what the General Assembly and regional organizations have agreed are the standards in their work. Now, what's the advantages of that? One reason, quite simply, is legitimacy. If you go into a country, and for example, I went into Vietnam, and I was speaking at the Ho Chi Minh Institute, and I was a bit worried about speaking about elections there, thinking that I would be in a very critical audience, nobody would even buy it, etc. They immediately got it, and they saw how it could apply to their country, and they asked me about questions like, how can we have primaries with more choice of candidates? How can we get rid of corruption? So if you say it's the United Nations and the regional groups who've set the standards and the countries have agreed to them, what you're saying is, are the countries living up to those standards? And so it has tremendous advantages of being authoritative and it applies to every country and it applies throughout the electoral cycle. So it could be a problem of electoral law at the very beginning or a problem of electoral management. It could be a problem of the campaign, like the media or the money, or it could be a problem of election day or it could be a problem of the aftermath, long delays, for example, in announcing the results. Now, the disadvantages is it's somewhat a woolly concept. There are lots of things which I think should be part of a concept of electoral integrity which aren't yet written down, and in particular, issues like money. There's almost no international conventions on how we should think about public funding or how we should think about the regulation of political money, and it's an area that we need to push forward on so some aspects, I think, lag behind, but nevertheless, it provides an inclusive way of defining a standard. So let's then say, if we accept that, how do we measure it? Well, first we say there's 11 steps, and we think of this like a cycle. So if any one of those steps breaks down, if there's a flaw, it's like a chain. They're each interlinked. And it starts with electoral laws. A country like Singapore, everything's honest, everything works at the ballot box, the electoral laws are very much skewed towards the governing party who have been in power now uh, for 28 years or something like that. And the opposition is not able to be effective. Electoral procedures can be problematic. How you draw your boundaries. Malaysia. We've had a lot of attention in Malaysia um, to our report because the opposition says essentially that 
their vote has gone up, but they can't break through. The government won 40% of the vote, 60% of the seats. Why? Because of the district boundaries. It looks very technical, it looks like a hidden thing, but that can determine the outcome very easily. Voter registration, how accurate is that? And a lot of countries have had real problems in having an accurate voter registry, but again, if you exclude a large group of populations, particular regions or particular categories, that has a major impact on electoral integrity. Party and candidate registration includes women and minorities. How far do they have opportunities? Media and finance are basic issues. Voting processes, that's often what we think about, but actually it's not necessarily the problem. The vote count, the results, and then the election management bodies. So each one of those we give equal weight to. We don't say that one is more critical than another, but that if you have a problem in any of those stages, you break electoral integrity. That's our kind of core notion. So then what we've got to do is measure that and say, how do we know whether it works or not? So this is what we do. We do an expert survey. And expert surveys are all the rage. Um, for example, you've heard of Transparency International's Corruption Perception Index. Basically, the idea is you don't know about corruption with any objective indicators, but you can ask experts. And a survey should get at a view of how different countries rank and what the problems are. So we have created the Perception of Electoral Integrity Index, and it's an expert survey based on similar methods. And by the way, it is perceptions because you can't measure the reality. So it's how experts see the quality of elections. And we're pretty ambitious. We're covering every country, uh, except, by the way, China, because China doesn't have national elections, and Saudi Arabia, because they don't have national elections. But every national election at presidential and parliamentary level, and we've done it worldwide since 2012. The only countries we exclude are the microstates with a very small population, because I just can't find my experts in Nauru and Peru and some of the Pacific Islands, much as I'd love to include them as well. The countries which don't have elections, there's about six countries right now, and so they're obviously, they don't have national elections, although they obviously have local elections, uh, and then the countries which are small of the countries we exclude, but every other country we, we include. Uh, UAE, uh, the Gulf states, and also a couple of other monarchies here and there, and then there are countries which are meant to have elections, but they haven't been held for uh, many years, because like Somalia, there's been fragmentation, etc., uh, etc. Et so basically, we have 175 countries out of 193 member states of the U UN. So pretty ambitious. And we, we basically ask people one month after each election, like with Canada, the results have just been declared. So we then go out and we ask our experts a range of different questions. Um, we're also doing, by the way, some subnational countries. So we're looking where a country varies a lot, like India, we're then doing at regional level, so we can compare within a country. We've got teams of experts in each of these. In Mexico, we covered the United States, in Venezuela, and so on. All of our data is available. Any graduate student in the room, you want data on any of these things, you pull it down. We don't sit on it. It's public, available, and we really encourage everybody to use it. And one of the things which has struck me, by the way, Tony, is that we've got a lot of graduate students who are interested in these issues. They've never had any information they can use. Mm because they come from various countries where they know it's the critical issue, but they've never been able to monitor it or compare. So there's a, lot of, there's a new generation coming in. We're creating a new subfield, hopefully. So we define experts. Now, this is a contentious matter. Whenever I come in front of various groups, it's basically rather like us, it has to be said. <laughs> um, so it's not journalists. It's not electoral officials. It's not politicians. Why? Because it's very difficult to find an impartial group. Uh, are scholars impartial? Mm. 
we, we hope so. We certainly try to test that. But we define it in terms of political scientists or lawyers or historians or economists or others who have published on that election and have an awareness of that country. And we include both domestic and international. So we do try and test something about their background. And we vet them. And uh, we ask 40 experts per country. And in some countries, we've got a wonderful response rate. You know, the Netherlands, it's great, 90%. In other countries, really difficult, especially if nobody's studying elections in that country. So the most repressive countries, uh, there isn't a tradition of studying them. But nevertheless, we try and find experts who've got 9,000. So what do we ask? Well, this is where the handout comes in. I don't know if everybody got the handout. If not, I've got just a few more, which I can pass around. Um, on the back are our 49 questions. And... Yeah, you can see some of them. So what we try to do, they're agree-disagree on a five-point scale. Sorry to sound nerdish. Um, but they basically are things, they're not technical. They're not things like what type of electoral system do you have or what type of quota. They're judgments which everybody who's um, expert, who has some awareness of that country should be able to answer about how the elections worked. And they're positive and negative because we want to basically not just allow people to tick down the road. So think about the elections in your country. And can you give your judgment on elections were well managed or electoral officials were fair, newspapers provide balanced election news, ballot boxes were secure, etc., etc. A range of different questions. And then we also ask them a lot of other things, for example, their age, their education, their nationality, to see if any of that makes a difference. So um, we're also going to add a new battery from next year, which is thematic. So we're going to pick a topic and just add a new issue which will rotate just as issues come onto the agenda or a particular issue comes up. For example, disability is a major issue for the international community, so we might ask a battery about that just for one year. Now, let's look at the results. And here, the first thing I want us to do is just to look at the map. So what we've got is we rate them all. By adding all those items together, we create a 100-point scale. And then we've got countries which are very high, countries which are very low, some without the national elections because they're not held or they're not in practice. Some not yet covered, like Russia, that will obviously expand and parts of Africa. And immediately you can see the variation. So first question to everybody, what do you see there which might be somewhat surprising? What do you see which might be not what you expected and where you might want to raise some questions? The first point, countries not covered, will eventually get to them, right? So Canada's just had its election, yay, Trudeau did well, and we'll go there in the next few weeks and talk to everybody, all our experts, who I'm sure will fill it out well. So we're moving along, it's a rolling survey. When an election occurs, we fill it out, and then we'll cover the world once we've done that. In 2015, we'll have another 50 countries, etc. It's only the countries which haven't yet had an election that we haven't yet covered, but we will. We have imperial ambitions, we're gonna cover everyone. Um, and sometimes two or three times, by the way, in Poland, we seem to have gone back lots of times. But the second question which you mentioned is that the United States, seen as the oldest democracy, unfortunately comes out as the worst of all the established democracies in our ranking. Um, and for that, you can turn over and you can look at the ranking which you've got. I'm sorry the type is so small, but you can't even read it on this, I know, which is why I hand it out. Um, so as you can see, some of the countries at the top are the established ones. Norway, basically Norway comes out on top of everything I do. It doesn't really matter. Gender equality, yay. Local government, yay. Uh, everything works in Norway and Sweden and Scandinavia. So, you know, what's to be excited about on that? But look down that list. But what about some of the other countries there? 
Costa Rica, doing really well. Lithuania, they did excellently in 2014. There were headlines in Lithuania how well they'd done on their elections. Middle income, an effective state, only transitioned, of course, 1989-1990, and yet doing remarkably well. And you'll find a number of developing countries. So one thing could be, in a particular case like Tunisia, why did they do quite well? Well, maybe people were thinking things are dreadful. Every other country in the Middle East had gone disastrously wrong. And so Tunisia did better than average. And so people gave it a, a slight boost. That's entirely possible. But we can find out that because we'll go back, of course, over time. So we can see, is there consistency or are there differences? The interesting thing, for, for example, about the United States is we've done both the midterm elections in 2014 and the presidential elections in 2012, and they both came out much the same. Um, so there are judgments over time which allows us to see, was it simply expectations of a change, or was it a real judgment of those experts? So the second one you mentioned is Rwanda. And of course, they're not the only country which is doing much better than you might expect. Um, any other countries, again, which jump out as being really little Uruguay, which always seems the Switzerland of Latin America. But again, they do well along with Costa Rica on nearly everything. Uh, and interestingly, of course, you'll have seen Guatemala and the problems there of corruption and, and instability. Venezuela, real problems which are coming up with that election happening. Uh, nobody knows what's going to happen, but we're monitoring it very carefully. So I think that some of these um, are very plausible about what, what's going on. They really do tell a broader story that we can get by looking at electoral observer reports, monitoring media coverage, and thinking about a range of other issues. But still the fact that, for example, Rwanda did well, and there are some other cases there which are better than might be expected. Any, any others which jump out? There's one or two. North Korea. North Korea. North Korea. That's right. The fact that North Korea seems to do quite well. Uh, so in the region, of course, Mongolia does, but Mongolia's doing pretty well in, in democracy. North Korea. And the other exception there is Cuba. Cuba does quite well. So why is this? So we've been thinking about this quite hard. And our basic argument, Tony mentioned a little bit, which is that we think that there's these two dimensions to running elections and to having an effective elections, one of which is democracy and human rights, and one of which is governance, if you like, the quality of can you actually do public administration 101. And think about a country like Cuba. It's a country where there's only a one-party state. Nevertheless, there's some in interaction for the selection of candidates, according to some of the best studies. There is some choice at the local level. And basically, the elections work in the sense that the register is accurate, of course, because the state has a real interest in making sure there's an accurate register. It wants to know that people are voting. Participation is high. Elections have no intimidation. There's no corruption. There's no vote buying. Essentially, on many of the dimensions, you find that a country like Cuba can do quite well in the administration of elections. And in contrast, some countries which were more democratic do very badly on that grounds. Because even though they've got human rights, which is inclusive, and opposition parties, which are strong, their administration is problematic. They have violence, or, or they have corruption, or they have other issues. They have very little capacity to run an election. And running an election is a bit like having an army. You suddenly have to get on the day, basically, everybody um, working in the same area with no room for error. All you need to have is one area which has a problem. And immediately, that loses trust, loses legitimacy, and the election itself can really raise some major questions. Um, in India, I was speaking to one of the ex-heads um, of the election commission. How many people are polling workers in India? 10 million. Well, of course, you've got a population of 800 million. You've got to get out on the polls. You've got a month-long campaign. 
you've got people with polling um, areas which go off on elephants to the mountainous areas. So it's a tremendous logistical operation. So some countries are not doing well because they don't have the capacity to run an election. And a case like Mali is a case like that. But many other developing countries which have moved towards democracy, particularly in Africa, but have weak and fragile states, find it very difficult to mount an election, which is a time of high uncertainty, often instability. Other countries have a state which was effective, and as they've liberalized, they've managed to open it up and really use it for an election that's, that's quite well. But we don't have to just use our 100-point index, because our 100-point index is too black and white. It only tells you the overview. It doesn't tell you the problems. So what we can do is we can break it down. And we can say for each of those 11 steps, what's the weakest part and what's the strong part? And this is where it's useful. This is where if you're a polling worker in that area, you want to know what were my problems in my election. Or if you're an international agency wanting to say, where do I need to really help that country? You can look across. So let's look at the United States. And we've got the electoral laws. They're not seen as very good. Why? Because election law in each state was highly controversial in the last couple of elections. That's where much of the debate has been. Boundaries, gerrymandering. We live in Cambridge, the home of gerrymandering. Um, we created it for whatever it's worth. Uh, but clearly, partisan boundaries are a major issue. In many countries, they're drawn by the judiciary. Voter registration was a problem. Campaign funding, of course, is a problem. So is, are the results credible? Well, I think when we break it down, then it starts to say what's actually happening underneath the pattern. And in different countries, widely diverse, where are they doing well, where are they not? And of course, if you look at that, which is the stage which is the weakest overall? Campaign finance. That's the one which is here. And you can see all of these countries in our traffic light colors are having problems with money and politics, basically. Whether it's hand in your pockets, or whether it's just excessive money or a lack of a level playing field or whatever the issues are. So that's our measure. I realize I'm going on a bit, Tony, but let me summarize then. We'll move on to the, well, let's just say first, any questions so far? Because I know I've, I've thrown a lot at you and then we'll talk about the actual analysis of the international community, please. So our experts, we release our data set at three levels. One is the individual experts, anonymized, but you can look at that. Or you can look at it by uh, election, and so you can compare elections within a country or at country level. So all three are available on Dataverse, so you're very welcome to pull it all down. And that means you can do things like run a little regression and look at whether characteristics of the experts predicts their ratings, uh, which we tried to test. And in fact, for example, it appeared that not that much did predict. Uh, we asked people their left-right spectrum, we asked people a whole bunch of different things, and not much predicted. It seemed a fairly uniform uniform pattern. It's all to do with the boundaries. And of course, the problem is that we have so few competitive boundaries and every, every incumbent is being returned in the United States. And that for me is a scandal of the partisanship of the boundaries. And again, if we could somehow, as some states have tried to do, have more neutral and bipartisan commissions to draw those boundaries, then I think we could get more competition. And of course, the current situation, if you really think about the bitterness in DC, if you think about the polarization and why nobody's talking to anybody, it's simply that everybody's talking to their base and nobody's talking across the aisle. If you have a mixed constituency, you have to make some overtures to everybody else's groups and everybody else's ideas. Then you have a more centrist politics, which basically creates that incentive that you can't just appeal to your home base in your primaries 
and in the general election and get elected. It's growing as a phenomena, certainly. I think it's about 12 right now, but I'd have to have a look because I know that a number of states were thinking about that and they work in different ways. Uh, the Brennan Centre for Justice is very good at documenting some of those changes and looking at state laws on lots of different issues like registration processes, uh, voting processes and also commissions for boundaries. Um, California, for example, always leads the way in these progressive matters and they've moved towards that direction. Um, it still hasn't got rid of incumbency advantages in a way which is purely neutral, but it's moved a little bit in that direction, and I think that's a, a good thing. Any other questions about the measures so far, or are we all okay that we can kind of think, okay, this is a measure, and let's have a look at some results? Well, let me also just mention that, um, again, I was down at the UN last Tuesday, as I said to Tony, and I was speaking in front of most of the major agencies, and most of the agencies were doing electoral observing, and they bought this idea, and for them it was a good complementarity. They're facing the challenge that they go into an election and they're increasingly finding lots of competition. So the EU will go into Russia, but so will observers from the CIS. And as a result, their message is being diluted. So what we can do is provide an independent source of evidence that they can then use. And it's also been very effective at what I would term naming and shaming. Uh, the publicity when we produce our annual report, which comes out um, every year around February, in particular has uh, incredible the amount of co coverage in lots of countries, but particularly where uh, opposition can say, the elections are not fair, they're rigged, they're manipulated, they're problematic, and it's not just us who's claiming that, but here's an independent expert and a group who's really pushed for that. No, the me I tell you why. When you look at that list, um, it's basically the countries at the bottom, which are really the ones which take it up. So in Malaysia, for example, they looked at that list and they said, hey, we're right next to Zimbabwe. This is not good. Malaysia should be much higher than that. And they were mobilizing anyway to try and get changes in the electoral system. So for them, it was extra fuel that the reform movements could use very effectively to push for that. Uh, so the countries at the bottom were the ones that were most disturbed, where we got the most attention. And the countries at the top, Lithuania was very pleased, but the other ones, I mean, they don't, they're not really worried, so they say, okay. Um, and in the United States, there was a bit of attention, but not much. So, you know, the United States doesn't kind of notice international stuff. Well, we did do one for the Washington Post, and that was useful. That got some attention, but it hasn't been sustained. Um, because part, I, I think it's partly the assumption that, um, you know, when we said, why is America ranked so low? Well, everybody assumes American elections should be high. Uh, democracy works in America, so, well, though some people assume that, Janice. So, uh, anyway, whatever the reason is, it hasn't caught on in the way that it has in some of the countries right at the bottom. That's where it's really been a naming and shaming thing. And in particular, if you're a small country and you think you should be doing better and you have a reform movement that's active, then it takes off and the publicity is enormous. Um, quite amazing. And everybody at the UN that we spoke to, all the organizations, IFIS, Carter Center, UNDP, they all knew about our work. And you think it's just a little team doing our own little thing, but it's really gone global. IFIS, IFIS, I International Federation of Electoral Systems, not ISIS. <laughs> I don't think ISIS cares too much about our little measure. And I know, um, although there will be elections in Syria, we'll see what happens there. Okay, let's then, yeah, let's talk about when do elections, why do elections fail? So you've then got to explain what's going on. And you know, like we started with those examples, maybe there are different reasons in different countries. So I do set out a model, 
Um, and it has different building blocks. I'm trying to explain my perception of electro integrity index, why it varies. So the first thing we can put in, fixed structural conditions. Countries which are large, countries which are poor, countries which have, have bad infrastructure, countries with the resource curse. All of those make elections risky, really difficult to run. And this is the classic Lipset argument about why democracy is difficult in those conditions. Plausibly, it should have an impact for us as well. But they're also fixed, meaning we can't do anything about them, really. If you've got the differences between small and large or a country with conflict or peace, it's a very slow thing to change. International forces are what the international community does and how we can try and assist an election. And right now, we're spending about a tenth of all of our international assistance over overseas aid on governance and civil society. And quite a lot of that is being spent on elections. I calculate about half a billion every year. Both of those should have an effect on electoral integrity. But in addition, the book says constitutional power sharing, which is the Leipzig argument. The more that you have more winners, the more that people feel included, that should lead to more effective elections and more stability. And the role of election management bodies is critical because they're the ones that deliver the election. They're the ones who do the grassroots work uh, for that. So different chapters pick up on different parts of this. I don't believe in parsimony as our economists do and just having one thing which explains the world. Um, but I think for the time being, I'm just going to talk about this element and leave the other ones for granted. And all of these go arrow, arrow, oh, and they, then the arrow goes back and it goes back, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. So here's the theory. And what you'll find is that there's a number of scholars who are doing some good work in this field who've started to take this up. And the argument they make is that carrots and sticks matter. The international community. So the work of things like the UNDP or the Organization of American States or the Carter Center are all part of the international impact. And they all seek to have a program on democratic governance. So we've got work by Daniel Adorno, who's good, Susan Hyde, Nicholas Marinoff, and others. And what they say is that three things in particular might impact, and I mentioned them earlier, cosmopolitan communications transmitting across borders. Are your borders open or are they shut? The more they're open, the more you should be part of the international community and global norms should go into your country. Think about East Germany and the way in which they got all the messages from the West so when there was an opening, immediately they could adopt those norms versus a country which is miles away from all of those things. Technical assistance and development aid, obviously that should improve the quality of elections. And lastly, electoral observers, when people go into a country and observe. So what's the evidence for each of these different things? Well, first, we know that globalization has expanded. This shows us a very good uh, scale and it's developed by a Swiss institute who look at trends in globalization using three different indicators. They have some lovely indicators of social globalization. They're things like how many McDonald's a country has. Um, political globalization are things like how many uh, countries are members of international organizations. We have economic globalization by trade. And you can see basically the pattern. Slow globalization in the 1980s and an increase in the 1990s. So plausibly, the more that you get information about how elections work in your region and in the world, the more you're going to expect that in your country. Aid spending has also gone up. 
And again, let me show you this. This is from 1971 through the most recent period from official development assistance. And look at what happens. An enormous expansion in the 1990s through to 2000. It's also quite fascinating that this happened quite late. It wasn't happening with the fall of the Berlin Wall. It took more or less a decade after that before the international community with all the bilateral donors really put money into governance and um, civil society, a wide range of different programs. So plausibly, the more money we put in, then the more that might affect whether or not elections work and the big, big, uh, the big transition. And of course, that transition is complex to explain. That's a whole other book. It's partly about the World Bank. It's partly about 9-11. It's partly about Bush and a whole range of other things which affected the international community around that period. And then election observer missions. This gives us a nice graph showing how they were started early on, but very few happened in the 40s and 50s. There were a few. Cambodia was important, but not that many occurred. But look what happened, again, from the third wave onwards. And more and more organizations are sending missions whenever an election occurs to see what the quality of the election is like. It started off in 19... Uh, this is the end of the um, fall of the Berlin Wall, the beginning of the, the big changes then in Central and Eastern Europe, and then ultimately uh, and other changes in Africa and other parts of the world. So more missions, more globalization, and as we've seen, more international aid. What works? Now here's my model, and I know some of you will hate it, some of you will not, uh, so let's see how we go. First, what I do, my dependent variable, what I'm trying to explain is the perception of electoral integrity index you've all got, that 100-point scale. First, what I do is I put in the economic factors, and what I'm looking for is, is this a good predictor of perceptions of electoral integrity? And quite simply, income per capita GDP is a good predictor if you're poor, you're more likely to have problems in your elections than if you're a rich country. No surprise. But it's actually also a stepped shift. It occurs around 15,000 per capita. Once you're past that level, your elections work. Natural resources, the curse of oil because of state capture, is negative. So those two things you can't do much about. Then I put in the first couple of factors. And what I've got is the index of globalization I just mentioned and the level of uh, the quality of elections in countries around you. You know that you mentioned South Africa, but also if you look, Lesotho and other countries in the Southern Cone were also green. And we saw that there were clusters in other regions. So what we find is that natural resources continue to be a problem, unfortunately. If you have oil and gas, that's not good for your quality of your elections. But whether or not you're globalized or isolated and how your region is going is really important. And the best example of that is, I think, Central Europe following the opening up of membership of the European Union, where that clearly affected all of those countries in the region. And the example and the carrots and sticks the EU used was very effective at trying to improve the quality of elections in all of those member states. It's now had more problems, of course, which we won't go into, but nevertheless, that, that seems to be an important factor. Now, again, that's a fixed condition. You can't affect who your neighbors are. And by the way, it's negative as well as positive. So if you live next to South Africa, that's great for your elections, probably. But if you live next to Russia in Ukraine, you'll be negatively affected. If you live next to China, not so good. But those are things which are important predictors of how your elections work. What about aid spending? No result, whatever. 
no significant result. Now, this for me was, of course, very disappointing in the sense that I'd been working at the UNDP, I'd been trying to help these organizations, and I thought, surely some of the things we're doing, all the money we're spending, would have some impact on the quality of elections. And I thought it was actually one of the stronger areas of development aid, that we knew what we were doing, but no. Why might it have been negative? Why is there no result whatever? Why is it that the total amount of spending on elections and on democratic participation, which I've used as a five-year average, has no sim impact on the quality of elections. But nevertheless, even controlling for that, I find no impact on the amount of money we're spending on all of our work and the quality of elections. There's an obvious reason which will strike everybody as soon as we think about it. They, they don't read my reports. They don't read my reports. No, I wouldn't say that I'm that influential that every, if uh, they read them, they'd suddenly do a lot better. Not yet, anyway. Um, no, that's not quite the reason. Anybody else? That's right. You're spending most on places like Afghanistan. Because the international community can't target it. It can't say Costa Rica's great, we should put more money into that. It puts its money into the worst cases. So the selection effects are that the international community has to basically invest millions of dollars, uh, 128 million, for example, in the Afghan election. But it knows that the risks are the highest in that context. Similarly in Sierra Leone, similarly in Burundi, similarly in most of the trouble spots around the world. That's where we have to put our energies as the international community. So. In point of fact, it's a very, there, there is no relationship. Uh, the other thing is, of course, that election spending is not a good proxy for the effectiveness of the programs. You can have very expensive programs, for example, biometrics. People who go off and buy biometric registration, it doesn't work. And you can have very cheap solutions. You put in a few experts to improve the electoral law, and it does work. So the two things don't go hand in hand. Please. Ah, yes. Uh, and I'll show you the pattern in just a bit to show you the scatter plot to see where it is. But it's basically all over the place. Often, again, spending has to be not on, uh, even on strategic reasons. It's also based on the fact you have to spend on each country because each country is a member state. And so each one gets an equal opportunity, if you like, on some of the, some of the measures of spending, depending on, on their priorities. But I'll show you the pattern, which as a scatter plot just by itself is pretty, is on the downward slide. So this is where I'm at with my project. And what you have to do is you have to actually look at that specific project and that specific program in that particular context. So I can't prove the amount of spending makes a difference. But I can look, for example, at training of election management bodies in Nigeria. And they came to a workshop. And then did they get certain specific skills in making a more accurate register, which they then took back to their country? So if you go down to the project level, which is a much more nitty gritty, very specific, uh, you can actually start to prove a little bit more the evaluation, but so far, most of our evidence is very, very, very soft. It's really mostly visiting, talking to stakeholders, but not really rigorous evidence in the way that you have in other areas of development. And that's, again, an enormous challenge which I'm facing. I'm getting heat from the uh, implementers. I'm getting stoppage from a lot of development organizations when I try to get this evaluation going either because they don't understand it or because they feel threatened by it. Um, and I will mention that it's a, it is what I'm actually doing right now when I'm going down to New York all the time and DC and so on. I keep on suggesting to all the major players in this field that we should do rigorous randomized controlled trials like you would for drugs or you would for agriculture or you would for bed nets or all the other development things. But when I get to the area of de democratic governance or elections, um, Either it's so unfamiliar they don't understand why it's important, why would you bother to randomize, what's that about, some sort of nerdish thing, or they think that when I say evaluation and they say evaluation, we're not talking the same thing. They think of it as results-based performance. Um, 
filling out the little grid with the number of workshops you've held, not about impact. And nobody's doing it much in a systematic way in this field, despite the fact that, as Tom Carruthers says, in fact, this field is under greater threat now than it has been for many, many years. It was on a rise, both in spending and in various other things, and now there's a pushback, which means that we have to demonstrate the effectiveness. We can't just spend what we've spent. Um, so it's a major challenge. Let me just finish off. Um, when I put in observer missions, that also has no impact either. So, say la vie, that doesn't work either. So, I, I won't show you this, I won't go into this in great depth, but I'll just show you, because you mentioned natural, oh no, na not natural resources, this one. No, next one. There we go, aid spending. This is why there's no uh, nice relationship, because there are all these countries that get lots of money, enormous price tags for elections, but the most difficult cases, and you can see some of those as well, Bangladesh, Togo, uh, uh, Pakistan, Guinea-Bissau, South Korea, lots of money being spent, but no, no, sorry, South, uh, no, Georgia, sorry, Serbia. I was reading the, um, the summary wrong. So the conclusions, and this is where we get to this evaluation, and I'll sit down. Essentially, you've got the kind of basic findings. Globalization matters, <coughs> your neighbors matter, your structure matters. I can't prove from this that the work of the international community predicts our effectiveness. Um, which is both understandable but also kind of disappointing. And it certainly lets skeptics say the international community is trying to do a lot and not succeeding. That's a potential way to understand it. I think our evidence isn't right and the unit of analysis is wrong. It's too big. Uh, so if I could get down into a more nitty gritty, we have a civic education program, for example, in Burkina Faso. NDI is doing that for young people. So let's do a quick beforehand baseline survey, afterwards an impact survey, and look at the difference between those groups who've been randomized into different treatments, and then we can start to talk about impacts. But only impacts then at a very nitty-gritty level where it's very difficult to generalize. So our methods are kind of lagging behind, and our stock of observer missions, again, is not significant overall, but it can be in a particular country, depending on the circumstance. So I'm now, this is where I'm struggling. Um, and this is the final book. And I know that the international community and all of us are trying to do lots of different things to try and improve elections. In some cases, we're trying to improve transparency, working with the media. In other cases, we're trying to improve gender equality and more women in office. In other cases, we're trying to reduce conflict, an enormous problem plaguing so many elections in Asia and Africa. Uh, in other cases, we're trying to improve the convenience of getting to the ballot, etc., etc. And we can identify them, we can describe them, we can say what's being done to some extent, um, but we haven't yet got convincing, systematic, rigorous evidence that it works. And uh, the bottom line is I think that's, where we need to, that's what we need to do, that's our priorities. And trying to persuade practitioners, which I've been working in partnership with, that this is a, a thing they need to take on, not just us, it's not just about scholars, it's about an interaction between the scholarly world who brings some techniques and rigor, to the practitioner world who bring the real world experience and can give us access to their real programs. If we can get that, which is very much the mission of the Kennedy School, of course, then I think we could really move forward. Um, but I'm not sure that we're there yet. Thank you. For these questions, um, measures around both the quality of governance and I guess more general kind of human rights practices 
in the country. So I would expect those, you know, might matter. And there are also areas where development agencies also work, you know, on a longer term basis. So I'm not actually that surprised by the results on the aid because you get that in other areas of development assistance as well, partly because you do have these other underlying kind of structural factors. Um, so all I suggest is that obviously this is just a snippet, i.e. one chapter from the book. So it builds up. And if you take the overall model, which has disappeared, I wonder why that is. Anyway, uh, the overall model absolutely takes account of things like the quality of governance, because that's really important. And if you have an effective public sector, there it is. Oh. This is chapter four. So I then, I basically think of it as this. Um, so the next chapter is really about the constitutional and then the EMB, the electoral management. And there, the quality of the public sector, are they impartial or are they patronage? Are they uh, effective through various measures like the World Bank? Very good predictor about whether the election is going to work at all. But they're nested models. So first I take the fixed conditions or the broader conditions, and then I go to the more specific, and then the more specific again. But there are many, uh, all the factors you've mentioned can obviously be important. Income inequality, by the way, terribly difficult to measure, as you know. So that's one of the reasons why uh, we've got so much missing data in so many parts of the world. It's difficult to operationalize, but it's a very plausible explanation for the conflict and for all sorts of things going wrong. Uh, thank you very much for your talk. Um, I was just wondering, with the survey you have with the 9,000 experts, do you ever, do, have you ever had the opportunity to just ask them the question, you know, if they were a political candidate in their country of specialty, where exactly do you get the money to run a campaign and win an election? Money in politics, yeah. So we don't ask our experts, but we have actually a separate project called Money, Politics and Transparency. And we did that with Global Integrity, and that's producing a book for Oxford, another advert, Oxford University Press next year. Uh, we've got an executive report, but I, I haven't got it with me, but uh, that focuses very much on this issue, and it's a hidden area. Um, so we don't ask our experts, but what we do is we identify four different types of policy around the world, and then try to say what type of regulation is most effective for producing electoral integrity and a variety of other good governance kind of things. So is it public funding? Is it campaign limits? Is it donor limits? Or is it transparency? Uh, and we're covering 60 countries in the study by Global Integrity and trying to get some more data on that. But as you saw, it's a major problem. It's a major issue of, of all the different countries. And it's shared. I mean, it's every affluent country as well as every poor country has got this issue of money in politics. Thank you for your, uh, for your talk. Uh, I'm not surprised that you're meeting resistance uh, in reporting the, the absence of movement in both uh, observing and in uh, financial support. Uh, there are two large industries built around these events, but psychosis is defined by <coughs> repeating the same thing again and again and expecting a different outcome. I would imagine <coughs> that the real causes in these uh, bottom feeders where all the money is going is really gender inequality, poverty, and lack of education. And until these are addressed, or at least until the appropriate organs turn their attention to them, you're not going to see any movement. Um, 
curious to find out, just as you mentioned to the gentleman here, that you have another whole um, set of comparisons that it would be of interest to us. For chapter five, where you talked about power sharing, uh, ranked choice voting is something that happens in Cambridge, happens in the House of Representatives or you know, deputies in Australia. Uh, I, at this point, am very optimistic that it could improve the quality of both governance and democracy in the United States. Do you have any um, um, evidence for that or other forms of power sharing that ranked even better that you could share with us now? Okay, so I have a question about, um, it probably relates more to your first book. Um, I was wondering if you could take a step back and conceptually talk about the relationship between elections, um, the success of elections and the success of democracy. It seems to me that you could have a successful election in a state which has a failed democracy. That's good. And, and I love your definition of psychosis because, of course, for me, it's like banging my head against a wall, which is very similar. Um, so there is resistance because there are inbuilt interests. And therefore, you say, let's evaluate. And we should think about evidence. And you want to learn whether what you're doing is better. But of course, it's like trying to evaluate faculty at Harvard as well. There's always resistance from those who are being evaluated. And so if there's a sufficient indifference or lack of pressure, and some agencies are changing. So USAID now does have its official evaluation policy. And so for every project, it meant it's meant to build in an element of evaluation. But you know, it is expensive to do. Out of all the small projects, you spend 300,000 on a project. You're meant to spend X on evaluation. They say, so can we do it? Technical capacity is low. They don't know how to do it necessarily. Um, and so they do this kind of, I'll go there and do a document review and talk to multiple stakeholders and use all these other words. People are pretty happy, you know, they've got paid and they've gone on this nice jolly, so why would they not say good things? So it's soft in the way that we do our evaluation. But I think evidence-based policy is driving a lot of other changes in many other Nordic societies, that's for sure, and in Britain and in other places. So it's moving into the development field, and hopefully democratic governance will pick up on this more than they have at, at present. It's just a, lag a laggard in certain areas. It's also very difficult to do, of course, in some areas of democratic governance. Um, when you're dealing with bed nets, you've kind of got some way to just do it in all sorts of mechanical ways. When you're dealing with a major, say, electoral law reform, how do you ever think about an experiment or anything like that? But it can be done. Um, on the question of uh, the issue of electoral systems, yes, absolutely. So I put in proportional representation versus majoritarian, and the quality of elections is much better under PR, as you would expect. I can't talk about specific aspects because often um, they're so contextual in one particular country or another. But in general, the more proportional versus a mixed or a majoritarian system, which takes is a winner-take-all, is a better system for electoral integrity. And there's a plausible reason because it, if you think about a simple example, Democratic Republic of Congo in 2006, 30 years civil war, and they had a presidential election to try to resolve it. So the UN put in all of its force to try and make it work. They chose the French second ballot system for a president, which is a winner-take-all, um, which meant not only did you have to repeat the election twice within a month, which is doubles the expense, but then in the first election, people were unhappy, and then in the second election, they could only vote for the top two, and then only one can win. Well, this is no way to actually get everybody at the peace table thinking they've got a stake in the system, uh, especially when, if you don't have a, a voice in it, it's life-threatening. It's not just a matter of, you know, well, in a few years, I'll get in. 
it was really seen as a decisive transition, and it failed within a few months, everything fell apart again in that country. So proportional representation and all the other elements, i.e. federalism and pre parliamentary versus presidential, they all matter. Uh, the more, you know, every time I look at Leipzig's theories, it kind of works, it really does, in this area as in many others. Uh, so the more power sharing the constitution, the better the election's going to be, by and large. Um, and by the way, it creates the checks and balances and it builds trust, that's the reason. If you have more parties in parliament with scrutiny of the EMB, less opportunities to manipulate. And because you've got those parties engaged, you build trust in the system. You don't think somebody's going to manipulate it because you know more what's going on. Um, and then the last question about democracy and elections. As we say, they're two different things. And what we find, interestingly, by the way, is there's also a curvilinear pattern in some of these. So think about it from absolute autocracies which are just opening up. So a Belarus, for example, where more or less the results are, are you know, weighed before the actual vote is known. And then you get perfect democracies like Norway at the other end, and then the groups in between. So the hybrid states are the ones which aren't perfect or established democracies, nor are they rigid and repressive autocracies. And it's in that middle group where you get the highest level of conflict and contention, the greatest risk of the whole election breaking down in a variety of ways, and also problems of major manipulations. Why? Because it's much more, um, the opposition thinks they've really got a chance. They're not based on 10%, they might have 40% of the vote. So they think if we just shake the tree a little bit more, if we complain to the Electoral Commission, if we try and get out the votes with a few little manipulations, by the way, gerrymandering is very bad, uh, sorry, not gerrymandering, uh, single member districts. Uh, you're more likely to have corruption and problems at the ballot box if you have single member districts than a multi-member. You've got much more incentive to try to manipulate the result. So the closer the election, then the more the opportunities in hybrid regimes without rule of law to really try everything can go wrong. Uh, so they're very risky. Um, and it's easy to say countries should move from autocracy to democracy, of course, but that middle group, which people like Jack Snyder and others have always highlighted are really the difficult ones. You're neither fish nor fowl. And how you get to be a democracy is you have to go through this transition, but getting there is incredibly risky. And they often have very weak states so they can't have the capacity to deliver. And by the way, you're also electing politicians who basically have to make big promises, ridiculous promises, if you've seen in countries like Nigeria, you know, they're going to get rid of Boko Haram in a month or something nuts, and then no capacity to do that. Um, so people get disillusioned. The first election, big promises, second election, nobody turns out. Could you say a few words about the architecture of the international this is the first lecture I've heard in a long time where I heard the speaker use the word international community and didn't start um, swearing inside. Um, I'm a multilateralist, what can I say? Um, are there specific UN agencies that deal with elections? Yeah. Uh, what are they and uh, okay. what percentage, how much of, the, of this activity do they play as compared with the Carter Center or USAID or? So what you've got in the UN is two bodies. One is the UNEAD, Electoral Assistance Division, which is under the Department of Political Affairs, which is under the Secretary General. So they're the first port of call. If you ask the UN to help you with your election, which you have to do for the UN to get engaged, then they vet them basically to say, are we being used or is this a genuine opportunity somehow to improve the quality of the election? By and large, they say yes, but sometimes they say no because they think it's simply an attempt to use the UN brand, but it's going to be manipulated. They should say no to more things, uh, but that's another matter. Then the boots on the ground, 
it's the UNDP who provide the technical capacity. So you want to have your electoral management body on a training workshop, you want to help improve women's capacity to run for office, you want to help with the participation of young people, youth as they always call them, um, then UNDP is your friend and they'll come in and they'll give you technical assistance. They help one election every two weeks uh, and, and about 50% of the uh, majority of countries in the UN have now got some assistance from UNDP to help them with their election and they're pretty good in terms of their capacity to deliver on the technical things. What they're weakest on is the human rights side. Uh, this is just, I mean, between ourselves, right, because we're all friends here. So uh, you want to know how to run a good, efficient register. They'll give you assistance and they'll give you experts and they'll help you to do that. But then you have problems of the actual basic principles the UN is founded on. And because it's all softly, softly, not wanting to offend anybody, we'll work with you, we'll make you, help you. They don't stand up for some real fundamental problems that we've observed in many, many countries around the world. Uh, and then the other international players are those who are other multilateral agencies, um, intergovernmental organizations. So we have International IDEA, we have all the regional groups, the Organization of American States, the Africa Union, the EU, the Organization of American States, what did I say, OSCE. Even the League of Arab States has gotten to bed now and is now talking about sending observers and doing work on elections. And then we've got the bilaterals, which are the national groups, NORAD, NDO, CEDA, etc. And then we have the Carter Center and the others who are more NGOs, who have, and the groups like Amnesty International. So there's lots and lots of organizations and there's lots of activity, but they each serve different functions. So Amnesty International does the naming and shaming. Reporters Without Borders will talk about freedom of the press. UNDP will help you as a friend with your technical issues and resources and things like that. The World Bank, of course, plays a role on governance, but not on democracy because it can't do that. Um, but it does work on corruption and related issues and so on. So lots of players, all somewhat at war with each other a little bit, but on the other hand, essential for everybody to play their role and a lot of cooperation. And again, I just came back from the UN and so we've had lots of meetings with all the, everybody knows everybody and there's lots of groups of colleagues who work with each other, but all with slightly different mandates, missions and capacities. So what one can do, another one can't. And the UNDP between ourselves is, and the UN as a whole is kind of not working in all sorts of ways, but as I always say, it's the UN. You have to have it. Uh, and at the end of the day, even though they're not as effective as they could be in Syria and so many places, you know, I'm a multilateralist at heart. We need to have these organizations working. And so we can't undermine them. Technical assistance it's good at, at this level. It knows how to do it. It's your friend. Thank you, Tony.